As we're all aware, today is the full moon of the month of February, or in the Pali language, the month of Magha. So it's known traditionally as Magha Puja Day. And as we were discussing this morning at the gathering, the people who came to offer the meal, it's the occasion when the Buddha delivered his teaching that has come to be known as the Owada Patimoka. It's important that whatever impression is generated when we read the scriptures, that bear in mind the understanding that the Buddha's limitless compassion meant that he was always trying to help. Yeah. And sometimes you can read the Buddha's teachings and it can seem so complex and so subtle and so deep and so profound and, and you can think, oh, this is, this is beyond me. Little old me with all my lousy samadhi and my, my sporadic sati and, and okay, I've got some commitment to sila, but yeah, really, I, I don't know that I'm up to all of this. It's, it's, this practice is so difficult. We can, we can have that impression. We can project that onto the teachings. But if we remember that the Buddha was always trying to help, everything the Buddha said was aimed at helping. The the awakened consciousness for any being, the fact that the defilements, the distortions, the disfigurements of consciousness that that we would all be familiar with, ignorance, conceit, and its myriad expressions have been completely removed. And as a result, the heart becomes softer and tender and can't help but respond with compassion. So let's be careful as we read the Buddha's teachings, whether it's the injunctions to strive to overcome the hindrances or the uh, requirement to invest in, uh, attention in the impeccability of sila or uh, refining our discernment faculties so we can uh, analyse the the dynamics of consciousness. However, whatever it is we're looking into, let's not make it into too big a struggle. Yes, it is a struggle. It can be a struggle at times. But we want to view it as a struggle aimed at ending all struggle. If we have the wrong approach, if we forget the Buddha's compassion, we can turn our struggles into just bigger struggles, endlessly judging ourselves, comparing ourselves yeah. with how we think we should be or with other people, yeah. which of course is pointless because there isn't anybody else like us. There's only one of us. There's only ever been one of us. There only ever will be one of us. 
the conditions of the universe have never conspired before to produce anything quite like one of us. So there's no point in really comparing ourselves to other people, not literally. If we want to compare ourselves, we can compare ourselves with how we were five years ago. That, that can be useful. But being caught up in compulsive judging and comparing and criticizing is not compassionate, is not kind, and increases the struggle, compounds the struggle makes the struggle a lot worse than it has to be. So there's Sawada Patimoka that that the Buddha delivered on the full moon day, 2,600 and something years ago. There's that line that says, Nibbanang Paramang Sukang. Nibbana, liberation, awakening, is the ultimate happiness, the ultimate well-being. Or again, we can turn that into something too lofty, too difficult for ourselves. But another reading of that Awada Patimoka is also where the Buddha is talking about patient endurance. He highlights patient endurance and refers to it as the ultimate practice of renunciation. Mm-hmm. The ultimate austerity, or as Ajahn Jayasara calls it, the ultimate incinerator, that which burns up all the resistance, that which burns up all our struggle. Now that's all, that's uh, very worth remembering. Buddha wasn't just holding up an ideal like Nibbana, he did mention Nibbana and this possibility of the realization of unconditioned well-being, not a state that arises because we get what we want or we have to keep propping it up, but a self-existent abiding. Mm. He did talk about that, but not just believing in Nirvana, but learning gradually to meet the experiences we're having in the moment to gradually meet ourselves as we find ourselves and to learn from that. And we're talking about cells here because as we know there's not just one solid substantial cell. There's all these conditioned apparent cells. There's the happy self, the glad self, the gratified self, the sad self, the disappointed self, the angry self, the guilty self, the afraid self, there's all these different experiences of meanness which manifest. And our practice is not just to grasp at an ideal of liberation from struggle. We have that so as to get our bearings right, so as to set our compass right. Yes, that's important. But then what do we do? What does practice actually entail? It entails meeting ourselves where we're at. Because of our uh, deluded relationship to desire, which we all suffer from, this is not just uh, 21st century human beings who have this wild, passionate 
addiction to craving. Uh, all ignorant human beings have it. Yeah. And because of this, we have also this excessive willpower. Uh, we think that by just trying to get what we want, we're going to be successful. Yeah. Trying to get the experience that we want. Uh, trying to get the understanding that we want. Trying to get the liberation that we want. If we hold that up as an ideal and then we strive, struggle, willfully to get it, we tie ourselves up into a terrible tangle which makes things even more difficult. So a more skillful approach is to take this willfulness, take willfulness and turn it into skillfulness. Turning our willfulness into skillfulness requires enormous, as the Buddha said, patient endurance. We have this energy, we have this facility, this willful striving. We're so good at it. And whatever area of life we apply ourselves, we can... We can be willful. But are we skillful? If we are skillful, then we're learning as we go along. We don't just achieve the goal that we were aiming for. And we also learn something. We learn how to relate to desire in a more skillful way. If we're not mindful, if we're not restrained, if we're not careful how we engage with desire to reach whatever goal it is we're looking for, then we don't learn. So we try too hard. Maybe we do get what we want. Maybe we achieve our goal. But we're so caught up in the habit of becoming that we just look for another one. Even if we manage to overcome some problem that we're having, some obstruction that we were dealing with, if we're not exercising desire in a skillful way, if we're not engaging it in a skillful way, reflective as we move along, then we get caught up in it, we get lost in it. We get entangled, we get ensnared with it. And rather than desire to reach a goal being a useful, skillful application of energy, there's something that we hurt ourselves and, and also hurt others with. So patient endurance not bitter endurance, which we're probably also familiar with. Bitter endurance, we're putting up with sitting on an aeroplane for hours and hours and hours, surrounded by smelly people you don't want to be with, physically cramped up, maybe got a headache, lack of oxygen, uh, still hours to go. Uh, we can just grit our teeth and bear it. Or being in a work situation with people you don't want to be around, you just we can just grit our teeth and bear it in a bitter way. It's essential that we identify that as being distinctly different from patient endurance. That's bitter endurance. And that's a distortion of this quality that the Buddha is pointing towards. Patient endurance is a, a willingness to bear with, a willingness. We're willing to bear with this. And it's a choice that we can make. 
in whatever situation we're in. It's almost certainly going to have to be something difficult. We don't usually have to bear with good times. We usually just go along with them. But the difficult times, we can always choose, consciously choose, I'm going to bear with this. And to know that that's the cultivation of virtue. That's journeying on this path to liberation. The choice to bear with this unbearable, apparently unbearable experience, to endure this apparently unendurable experience, to tolerate this apparently intolerable experience. And we don't have to choose that, nobody's forcing us to, but it's really, really rather rather important that we recognize we do have that choice. Now, we can't say that I'm going to endure or tolerate or bear with this apparently unbearable experience for the next 10 years, but we probably can say the next 10 minutes. And if we cultivate this faculty of patient endurance, gentle endurance, if we cultivate it, we learn to have confidence in it and we can take on bigger chunks, bigger battles, more frightening demons. Where we meet ourselves, we need to exercise whatever skills it takes, whatever skillful means it takes, almost certainly patient endurance, until we can really receive ourselves. We can't let go of ourselves until we've received ourselves. Now, if we're engaged in willfulness, we might like to think that. We might like to think we can just overcome the disappointed me, just snap out of it, distract ourselves, or the sad me, just try and put on a smile and snap out of it. Sometimes it might actually work to approximate well-being and, and outshine some negative state, but you know, if it's a really difficult state, well, it's not going to work. And if we just keep willfully trying to do that, it's like trying to get rid of ourselves. Yeah. It's like trying to get rid of our heart energy. If our heart energy is manifesting as sadness or as disappointment or despair or disillusionment, what's needed is to meet ourselves there, to really meet ourselves there as we find ourselves, to accept ourselves, to receive ourselves, until letting go happens. Now, if we're not practicing long enough or we haven't looked closely enough at these things, you might assume that accepting yourself, receiving yourself as you meet yourself is the same as indulging yourself. But of course it's not. It's absolutely not. It's the same as the experience of holding something. You can hold something in a way whereby you can use it. You can hold a teacup to drink tea. Or you can hold it in a way that actually breaks the teacup. You can break the handle off the cup. You can hurt yourself. still called holding. And one holding is skillful and the other holding is not skillful. And 
So it is with as we meet ourselves, as we meet our experience on all levels, as we meet ourselves, it's always, always the task is how to hold it in the right way until letting go happens. Sometimes letting go happens immediately. Most of you will be familiar with the Buddha's teachings on the dealing the five ways of dealing with distracting obstructions to and practice and you know, some obstructions don't require a lot of effort but then other obstructions require tremendous effort you know the, the last of those five where it gives the image of of some wild man completely out of control just you know holding him down he's he's dangerous he's going to hurt somebody hurt himself you know, well there are such mind states that we can't deal with at the time in meditation. There are, there are the, the, uh, the raging me, the raging self, the terrified self. Yeah. When we encounter ourselves there, well, the skillful means that's needed to meet ourselves, receive ourselves there, is not aimed at letting go, it's aimed at containing. We need the subtlety of sati, the subtlety of awareness to be able to discern what kind of obstruction is this, what level of intensity is this. Not to try and overcome it, not to try and get past it, not to try and let go, but to ask, how can I meet myself here, right now? Developing the skillful means, whole body-mind, an embodied quality of awareness. Many of us, as we start out in practice, we've been conditioned to spend all our time up in the attic playing with the computer, up in our heads, thinking. For many people, when they start out in meditation, the teacher suggests using mindfulness of breathing, and people have trouble even actually finding the breath, feeling the breath. They think that watching the breath means crossing their eyes and looking at their nose tip. Watching the breath is paying attention to the body breathing, feeling, paying attention in a feeling way. For many of us, we're so out of touch with our bodies, we're just so used to spending time in our heads that we have trouble coming into the body. But the body can tell us a lot. The body can teach us a lot. And as we encounter these various selves, these difficult to deal with experiences, we need to be able to come into the body and listen. What do we feel in our guts? What do we feel in our shoulders? What do we feel in the centre of our chest? What do we feel in our toes? The body can teach us a lot. So whole body-mind awareness is needed here and now the kind of awareness that has recognized that here and now is not a fixed position where we refuse to think about the past it's not a rigid attitude that means we can't think about the future here and now awareness means that we've looked into what we call the past and recognize that it's an impression it's a representation. It's an approximation. Yeah. The 
impression that I have of living in New Zealand, those beautiful beaches and, and the bellbirds and the tuis singing in the trees. And, yeah. I can have that impression in my mind, but that's not New Zealand. It's a nice impression, yeah. but that's not New Zealand. Yeah. Or people, or a conversation that we had, a conversation that we had with somebody maybe years ago, we can bring that impression to mind and then the same feelings that we had at the time come up. Maybe they were painful. If we're not careful, we can assume that we're right back there in the past. But if we've cultivated here and now awareness, we can know that's an impression of the past. And believing in this feeling that's associated with that impression, we've got to be very careful about that. Disbelieving in it, we've got to be careful about that as well. But finding a way to receive it, to meet this me, imagining for the sake of the example that it's a hurt me, receiving this hurt me, but in a here and now awareness. This is a different situation. This is not that situation anymore. We have different skills than we had then. So here and now awareness is looked into these impressions that we call the past and isn't so fooled to think that it really is another time, another place and losing the groundedness of here and now. Here and now awareness is grounded, here and now. We can feel our feet on the ground and sitting up straight. But we can still think about what happened and what we call the past. And we can still think about what we refer to by the future but we don't have to lose our groundedness in this moment and get lost in speculation. That is, if we've really trained our here and now awareness. We can entertain thoughts of the future, but without becoming lost. We can entertain impressions from the past, but without becoming lost, if we've developed here and now awareness. So whole body, mind, here and now, and then judgment-free. Judgment-free awareness, which, of course, there's many other ways of distorting awareness, but this compulsive judging tendency that so many of us seem to struggle with, I think deserves special mention. Yes, as I was saying, there's lots of habitual tendencies of mind that distract us, but if we haven't checked to see whether we are caught in this compulsive judging habit, then we're at risk. Uh, even if what we call our practice is going well, and we're having some nice meditation experiences, uh, if our awareness is not free from the compulsive tendency to take sides for and against, which is the activity of the compulsive judging, if our awareness is not free from that yet, then we're at risk of clinging, even when the times are good, even when practice is going well, or what we call going well, we take sides with it. Oh, this is how it should be. Yeah. And we may not notice at the time that that's actually a problem, but if we follow that tendency at that level, at that stage, when things are going in a different direction, like how we don't want them to be, then we will automatically be inclined to cling 
and say it shouldn't be this way, we will reject. So there's accepting and rejecting tendency, pushing and pulling tendency that is the expression of the compulsive judging mind. It really deserves special mention in terms of the tendencies that we can pollute our awareness with. It's not wrong, this discriminative intelligence that we have, unless we say it's wrong. That's an expression of our compulsive judging mind. It's not wrong, but it is painful and it is unnecessary. It's a perfectly natural consequence of the way we were educated. Uh, the kind of education that all of us had, that emphasizing discriminative intelligence, is okay up to a point and being able to analyse and to compare and, and extrapolate and speculate about how things could be otherwise is a marvellous thing that we human beings can do but when we're identified as it when we don't have a perspective on it we don't have the humility to see it as just a function of the mind one of the many functions of the mind when we don't have that view about discriminative intelligence, we become stuck on it and, and then it gets distorted. So that tendency of mind gets disfigured and becomes compulsive. You know, like dislike. Dislike is perfectly normal functioning of the mind, but if we become attached to disliking and liking, if we become attached to that and lost in that, then that function becomes disfigured. You know, we compulsively, excessively uh, caught up in that activity. So, in terms of developing the awareness, which has got the potential to be able to receive ourselves, all our many selves, as we meet them, yeah. here and now, whole body, mind, judgment free awareness yeah. can be a helpful structure to reflect on. Some of these, some of these expressions of our unawareness, are really tricky to deal with. We really don't want to deal with them. We want to go towards the light. I was mentioning a week or so ago about the Greek myth of Icarus, who plunges into the ocean as a result of getting too close to the sun. Didn't heed the teachings from the wise elder, and allowed himself to be pulled towards the sun, you know, like a moth is pulled towards candlelight and, and doesn't have the intelligence to know that it's dangerous and it gets burnt and killed. Well, likewise, our uninspected conditioning can mean that we get pulled towards that which we like, the light of our mind, the beautiful experience is a peaceful mind. We can become really distracted by peace. Mm. Of course, peace is very attractive and, and welcome, but if we're not skillful in our effort, we get overly interested in it, overly attracted to it. And then when something dark and unattractive comes along, which is really what we need to be looking at, we dismiss it, or we can do. 
I like a uh, teaching from that uh, great German Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart, 13th century, I think, Christian mystic. Uh, he says, if you want to know God at his greatest, first you must know yourself at your least. Yeah, it's really, really good to remember. Yeah. When we go for refuge to the Buddha, we might like to think that we're going to become like a great big golden Buddha. As Ajahn Chah pointed out, some of you might have read in his transcribed, translated teaching, he says, don't want to be like that great big golden Buddha image, you want to be like an earthworm. It's yeah. a really helpful image, the earthworm. Yeah. Just munching away at that which is in front of us, you know, plowing through the darkness. Yeah. We can want that which is attractive. It's natural to want that which is attractive, but it's not necessarily skillful to follow our habits of wanting. That's why this morning the, the Patimoka was talking about how important he, it is not just to have sati and sampajanya, but also sangwara indriya, you know, the sense restraint, that, that spiritual muscle that means we have the ability to hold back from our habitual reactions. Yeah. In our meditation, you, you've got some peacefulness, and well, I'd like some more. You've got a little happiness, well, I'd like some more happiness. You've got some really stunningly intelligent uh, new perspective on things. Oh, I want some more. Well, that wanting more, it's kind of understandable, but it's also kind of like the moth and getting pulled towards the candlelight. It can take us into places where we really get hurt. I'm enormously grateful to Ajahn Chah pointing out that he said, there's nothing to be afraid of in practice. Nothing. Nothing at all to be afraid of if you're not lost in desire. Again, the Buddha's teachings can seem so complicated, so subtle, so difficult, so beyond my ability. But if we bring it back to you know, keep it simple, Look at our relationship to wanting. You know, remember, there's nothing to be afraid of if we're not lost in desire. Yeah. It takes a lot of skillfulness of attention, not willfulness, skillfulness of attention to restrain our habits of following the impulse of wanting and to investigate it. And it's not going to just happen after a few weeks or even a few months. You know. It can take many years of not following an impulse, making the effort to not follow an impulse, yeah. before one day you're suddenly there for it. You're not having to strain yourself to not follow it. Yeah. In the beginning, that's what it can be like. You know, these heedless habits that we have. We followed them for a long time, and I don't just mean like for the first 22 years of our life before we came across Buddha's teachings. It could be many lifetimes we've followed impulses. Yeah. We don't know. 
but surely these impulses have got a lot of momentum. And so, again, patient endurance, limitless patient endurance, yeah. and exercising skillful restraint, deciding not to follow this impulse, however long it takes. Not saying, well, I'm going to do it for, for the next 10 minutes or the next 10 days, the next 10 weeks, or even the next 10 years. I say, however long it takes before letting go happens. And remember, of course, we don't do the letting go. Letting go is what happens when we can eventually receive ourselves. We meet ourselves where we're at, receive ourselves until letting go happens. I think I spoke with the community a few months back about that friend of the, who lives down in London who, who came to visit here and he was relating to me how recently he had an experience where he was in a situation that normally would have triggered one of his most difficult, unpleasant, painful obstructions in life, which is rage, anger. Not mild dislike, but this visceral anger. And he said, he, he told me, I didn't know, but he told me he had struggled with it all his life. And all sorts of things that, as far as he was concerned, and perhaps as far as the average person was concerned, there's no need to get upset about, but he would get upset about, really upset about. But he kept making this effort, he kept making this effort to not follow it, to restrain, to reflect, to be present for, to meet it. Not to push it down back into the basement again, pretend it doesn't exist. Not to heedlessly follow it, like we were chanting the Dhamma Chakra Sutta now. In the very beginning there, the Buddha talks about you know, the two extremes of, of indulgence and denial. Yeah. Indulgence in pleasure and denial of pleasure, or indulgence in self-mortification. These two extremes, these are to be avoided. There's no end to that. But there is, we can have faith in this, there is, there is this third alternative, exercising the quality of well-developed awareness and restraint and rise reflection. Until, as this friend mentioned, he said the situation recently he found himself in, where he, he was going to be left somewhere where he really didn't want to be. He just sat down and suddenly, for the first time, it didn't happen. Nothing there, just quietness. No anger, no rage, no feeling offended. It just wasn't there, it didn't happen. Now, having faith, having trust, having confidence that this is possible is important. Yeah. It's precious when our faith gets triggered in these teachings. Not everybody has faith. Faith is really precious. Dajan Punya was telling me earlier this evening that he found out that this village here, Harnam village, uh, used to be owned by the Babingtons, correct? Many years ago, they had a crest and they had a motto which said, faith is everything, faith is all. Was it in Latin? Norman French, foi et tu. Well, that's not actually a Buddhist teaching. Yeah, faith is the juice. Faith is the juice that we run on. Wisdom is everything. Liberation is everything. Awakening is everything. 
Faith is not everything as far as Buddhists are concerned. You know, faith, trust, confidence is the juice that we run on. So when we have faith, we have trust in these teachings, we think that 2,600 years ago, 1,250 arahants spontaneously came to see the Buddha and he gave this teaching. And here we are, all these years later, you know, thousands and thousands of people all around the world today on the full moon of February are reflecting on this teaching. Yeah. Let's use this reflection to support the faith that we have. Yeah. The faith is essential. We don't, we don't necessarily know how long it's going to take before we can receive ourselves as we meet ourselves, before we experience the letting go that's necessary. We don't know how long it's going to take. But faith and patient endurance can certainly support us on the journey. I thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu, <laughs> <laughs>